0: Big Album Show with Paul Dillon and Dan O'Neill. Hello and welcome to the Big Album Show. I'm Dan. And I'm Paul. Today we are interviewing Jake Riley, drummer from The Blades. The band formed in the late 1970s in Rings End, known by locals as Raytown, an urban area in Dublin's Docklands. The original lineup released two seven-inch singles: Hot for You and Ghost of a Chance. Before a reshuffle in 1981, which saw Jake join the band. That would be the lineup who had released a brilliant album, Last Man in Europe, which includes the classic tunes uh, like Down Market, Got Soul and Pride. It's a record every music lover needs to put on their turntable. The Blades have since gone on to reform, playing a number of gigs and releasing a studio album in 2016 called Modernized as well as an EP and a live album. They've also been inducted into the Irish Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. A snare drum belonging to Jake sits in the museum in Temple Bar, and the drum has been, and I quote, to every corner of the country, battered, beaten, and bruised from Bally Bunyan to Bally Shannon. Today, we're looking back at the Blades box set, Those Were the Days. Released in 2000, it features the tracks from Raytown Revisited and Last Man in Europe, plus a few bonus tracks. Jake, it's an absolute
1: honor to have you on the show.
2: Pleased to be here. Thank you very much for inviting me.
1: Jake, as Dan said, great to have you on the show. We're really, really delighted. Uh, Very proud that you're joining us uh, for this podcast. Um, I want to talk, before we talk about the Blades, let's talk a bit about you uh, in the sense of your journey to becoming a drummer and um, and why you took up the drums it is well known of course that the drummer is the coolest member of the band uh as the great charity watts demonstrated so well for so many decades and um, but yeah. can you tell us you
2: know what why the drums why did you start uh okay well the drum- we, in our house there was always music you know, from, the, from as far from as, early as I can remember, we were listening to music. and we, My mum had a good record collection, my older brothers as well. So my dad didn't quite get music, didn't understand it, but get uh, a kind of a Catholic attitude to music. But the rest was, you know, we, we listened to anything, like radio or television. And... Uh, I was saying earlier on, you know, you'd be counting the minutes or the hours for waiting for Top of the Pops to come on on a Thursday. So that was the big deal, seeing Top of the Pops and seeing bands on. And I do have a kind of a memory of seeing, I'm pretty sure, but I remember seeing the Beatles on Top of the Pops, but certainly I always watched the drummer for whatever reason, just thought the drummer, look, as you say, the coolest guy in the band. (laughs) sort of controller, you know, the guy at the back doing... The hard work kind of thing that's the way i saw it um and uh you, you know when you're growing oh well, yeah i think we all had music lessons and i tried guitar and piano but i just found those instruments too mathematical whereas drumming i kind of got it i kind of understood what it was about quite quickly um although having said that uh once i kind of got started listening to drumming and trying to play drums i didn't get drum lessons and and like in those days you didn't really you just taught yourself to do things Mm -hmm. um so as a result I'm left-handed but I didn't cop on that you're supposed to switch a kit around to be left-handed so I never did that and I learned to play a right-handed kit and uh when it dawned on me it was too late it's like you know I'd learned to do it one way and I couldn't switch it around but since then I've I, I didn't even know this but only a couple of years ago I discovered that uh Actually, Ringo Starr was left-handed, and he played a right-handed kit. And another, another number of other drummers, the same. They, uh, you know, they, they didn't get. They, they weren't told how to do it properly, and they were left-handed. Didn't switch around, so it just makes it more. Once I heard that about Ringo Starr, I reckoned, oh yeah, I knew he'd made the right decision.
1: <laughs> it's, it's interesting. Just <laughs> so, yeah. Jake, you referenced the, the influence of the importance of what's around you musically when you're growing up. Um, I think it was, you know, Paul said, and in, in, in Paul Clear in another interview about the importance of the Beatles when he was growing up, and, and that it taught him almost how to write songs. Can you yeah. give us a flavour of what, you know, you, you mentioned Top of the Pops and the, the drummer being the coolest, which I, I strongly agree with. Uh, but you know, what was the music? And you mem- 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 referenced your mum. What was the music that was around when you were growing up? That okay. You, well, you it's funny that I,
2: on my i have an album i have one that i think it's the hard days night album and joan riley is the name written out this belongs to you, my mom so uh like there it was that was her record collection so she had the Beatles. my brother my eldest brother had beatles but he got into kind of progressive rock and all that as well and he had like you know i suppose oh dear. The, yeah yeah all that carry on <laughs> um so there would have been like led zeppelin and deep purple and all that kind of stuff but also um also, like, um, a lot of the singer-songwriters like James Taylor and Carole King, you know, a lot of her stuff. Uh, Neil Young was, uh, I think, every Neil Young album that was ever produced ended up in, in his collection. So, and then there'd be a lot of other stuff like Motown stuff, um, a lot of those, like, the Four Tops, and certainly the Four Tops, the Supremes, um I think it was a things bit things. of everything, really. It was everything. There was never, we were never really, I mean, that's what I'm saying. If you could, uh, once you start looking into what you're listening to, you go into a rabbit hole and you eventually end up at the Beatles. No matter what, no matter what you do, it's just, they were such a massive, not just on music, but on everything, and just your whole attitude to, to life in the end. You know, they really were a huge influence on that. You know, group of you know that age, growing up in the six, late of the the early mid sixties into the seventies, Beatles would have been huge. So, in terms of being pigeonholed as a mod band, it just didn't really come to with us. Certainly not with Paul, because his influences would have been the same: Stax, Motown, um, Beatles. Uh, but like on top of the pop, you would have seen the Kinks, Beatles, maybe the Supremes. um, you Know in one show, uh, so that we would have been influenced by all that stuff. So being pigeonholed, although we'd be closest to the way you know the, the, the way you would dress as a mod and uh, the music of the was like oh, I was a huge jam fan. I mean, really, I uh, went to see them. I remember going on a with the jam, um, what was it, fan club to Paris to see them when they've released us that third album. Uh, so big jam fan, but at the same time, I the the best live actor best live band I ever saw was uh, the Clash so two totally different bands but you know we would have been influenced by the two of them so and
0: when you, when 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 I I remember when I was a youngster and and I got into the Beatles it was really I felt it was kind of almost really part of my identity um, in, in how I kind of responded to the music. And I used to have John Lennon t-shirts and I almost tried to yeah. kind of grow a dodgy Beatles haircut at one point. Um, I see you still have it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I'm losing it very, very fast. But uh, it, w- when you look back at the time when the Blades were in at their height, um, yeah. there seemed to be a lot of factions in terms of kind of mods, uh, uh, rockers, 2 tone. Sky Boys, you know, uh, yeah. all, all, all of that jazz.
2: Well, you know the thing about when, uh, when John Lennon was asked, was he a model or a rocker, and his answer was, we're neither, we're mockers. <laughs> <laughs> <So>. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. But
0: wh- wh- why do you think, do you think that music has changed for, for young people today? Do you think music resonates with, with people in the same way? Because it did seem, you know, obviously I wasn't really around back then, but it, it seems looking back at the Blades heyday, that the identity that the Blades gave to young people in terms of that kind of mod subculture really, really mattered to people.
2: Well, yeah, I, I t- social statement was much stronger when we were growing up in the eighties because uh well I think it was a tradition that started in the seventies obviously or the sixties well, in the sixties with um you know obviously the vehicles and uh, every like the the uh the anti Vietnam uh, campaign that clutches National Young oh, the amount of music that was that like, you hear on the your airwaves that was uh that was a social statement and really made a big statement about how they weren't you know young people just weren't happy with the way things were being organized and who was making the decisions and decisions that were being made were completely wrong and it was a massive culture subculture or a culture youth culture movement really Uh, and that that really passed on into the 70s uh and certainly uh, you know in the late 70s and early 80s it was pretty depressed certainly here was pretty depressed and there was a lot of uh just um, a lot of problems and people express them through music and also I think that uh, I think with the Blades and with Paul's songwriting there wasn't really a mouthpiece for um, you know disenfranchised working class people and certainly Paul would have been Paul's songs are one of the of the bands from that era from Irish bands from that era I think Paul's would, would have been the closest to real social comment. I can't imagine I can't think of any other of the bands from that era that would have been so heart-hitting, you know? Um, so, whereas now, I just don't... Music is so accessible now. You just push it. You just put your finger on a button and you can get anything. So, there's no kind of... Okay, I, I'm not really in touch with music now, to be honest. I, when I listen to music, I listen to, you know... I, I listen to a lot of stuff that was recorded a long time ago. And... Um, but I don't I don't know if it has the same social impact now as it did back then.
0: And in in, in some interviews um that Paul gave, he suggests that there was a feeling in the group at times that the band was becoming like a mod band and it wasn't a major concern it seems but it it, it was at the back of his mind that he didn't want the blades to be pigeonholed yeah. into one kind of group was that was that a concern for the band
2: well not a con- concern in a way i mean it was fantastic to have the support that we had and in fact the same the, the same people who were you know, going to the the TV club and the bag of the internet are, are have been coming to see us in the Olympia and the Academy in the last few years. It's the same the same people. The the uh, Fred Perry's are a bit washed out and maybe a bit tight now, but <laughs> but apart from that, they are the same people and the same. You know, they're incredibly. Uh, yeah, it's just uh, their enthusiasm is extraordinary. I don't know how they do it. I mean, they really are. It's great really to have that kind of following, and certainly we would be closest to the whole mod kind of ethos. Uh, but you know, we, as I say, you know, we love the jam, but we love the Clash as well. You know, I couldn't imagine a more non-mod band than the, the Clash. But uh,
1: yeah, I mean, you know. there, there's something, there's there's something, a few things there, Jake, that that really interest me. That you know, the enthusiasm of the fans for the for the Blades is something to it hold. Oh, absolutely! It's, yeah. it's, it's, it, it is beyond being fans of a band and it is almost being part of something and i think the, the politics play is part of that isn't it it's and you know there's something that you can be almost dedicated to something that you can support yeah uh, it, it's it's and, and one of the things that we must both myself and dan really wanted to talk to you about was the uh period in 1986 um of course i was just about around um then but the self aid concert. Do you remember this? The self. aid do, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I, it came in the um, in the sort of um, following on from Live Aid, where yeah, and this whole in self aid for for listeners who, who don't know, I mean, you'll see it on really in the years. But you could pledge a job, wasn't that a Jake? You could pledge Absolutely. a job. yeah.
2: something uh, to be honest, with you, the the sort of mechanics of it, I didn't, I never really copped, or didn't really bother looking into too much, because the idea of it. Well, look, the whole—I I know what you're going to say. You're asking about the fact that we didn't. Yeah, you,
1: the fact you—you you read my my mind, um the fact that you you didn't play it, and you did a uh, rock the system gig in Liberty Hall, yeah. and said, "Just tell us about about that, and
2: and, and how that came about, and, and what your thoughts were at the time." Well, at the time, okay, that was '86. Now, and we the band had more or less started. To, break up or the, that that we come to the end of our line and we were we were in the process of breaking up and that came up and paul had um i'm not quite sure the the time sequence but I, I think the uh partisans were in his mind or he was starting to set up the band but at the same time this came up and uh i mean paul you know paul then and most likely still is now uh is a socialist and his socialist beliefs were very much that, uh, you know, charity was hardly this, the, the vehicle for, um, you know, a, 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 it was a really inappropriate way of creating work. And in fact, like we talked, remember, we met about this. We, we were kind of broken up, but this would come, come along as, a, as an offer. And we sat down and talked about it. And the opinion was that, you know, it, it just, it's the idea of it just to us felt like as if, the people who should have been making should have been doing more to create jobs who've been let off the hook by this charity event. That was that was my opinion on it actually. But uh, you know, the, the, the people in the positions of power like the politicians should have been doing more rather than sitting back and maybe sitting up in the, the best seats watching bands play to create it. Just didn't seem right. We just uh, there was a, a bit of a whiff off, but it just didn't seem, seem right. But Paul. Put it very well i mean he, you know when he, he just said as, as he said himself it just wasn't the correct vehicle for uh charity wasn't the correct vehicle vehicle for creating jobs simple as that mm-hmm. and then the the gig that, that's probably you know maybe that's story has evolved a bit there what paul was going to do um there was an alternative gig and paul said he'd do a couple of songs on his own and it, it happened that when you know we were we met up for a few drinks before so we were all together in a pub nearby and there was a lot of gear there was band gear there at the gigs mm-hmm. we said oh, sure look we'll play so we, we got up and played so there was nothing really it wasn't a blades gig it ended up us as the blades playing two or three songs but that's that's how it worked out but in the end of the day i think you know it, it's it's whether you can sleep at night if we paul could have done that and showcase the sounds and it would have been a great way of you know showing the but, but uh he would never have done it it just wouldn't have sat right with him I <laughs> didn't so there, yeah
0: amazing um you you know jake on the show we ask our guests to pick the three um favorite tracks off the the record or in this case a, a box set yeah. um and i know you've you've picked three do you want to start off the 1st will you tell us what your first one is
2: what is my first one
0: okay.
2: uh, ghost of a chance is it yeah actually ghost of a chance yeah um okay well the re- well, obviously ghost of a chance is you know you're looking for a perfect pop song it is a perfect pop song the blades uh, uh when the blades when i heard of the blades they were a three-piece band and um i'd heard i remember we were in murray's records and i'd heard about this band someone said "Cheese jake you like the jam you'd love the blades Yeah, I must go get to see them. So they hadn't. They, oh yeah, they were playing a gig in Sean McDermott Street. It was an open air. um, Another benefit for, I think it was inner city. I think it was a drug relief thing, something like that. But it was uh, in Sean McDermott Street on a sunny Sunday afternoon, and uh, we sort of went. You know, it was kind of area that you wouldn't walk into without some sort of protection. No, but it was it was really quite a rough part of town. So uh, we headed down and came to where the gig was eventually and the blaze had just started. And the first song, I'm, I'm pretty sure it was Paul introducing this as a new song in the set and they hadn't quite worked it out. But the first song I heard was, the first thing I heard the bass play was Pat playing that, uh, that really, uh, really interesting uh, drum pattern for Ghost of Chance. Like, I don't know where he got it from. And I've, I must ask him someday, but uh, it's a pattern that I, I haven't heard on anything else. Uh, I've heard some things close to but nothing like that. The, you know, the the bass, drum and snare pattern that starts off but goes for chance. And it was the first time I heard it, and then the band came in. And I thought, they were just, they were a superb band. So I was a fan. And that's how I just go and see them all over the place. And... Uh, um. And, and, so, and how, the, did you,
0: how did you go from being a fan to being a member of the Blades?
2: Uh, yeah. Um, they passed, the drummer, at some point, With the, after a year or two, he, he decided he just didn't want to be in the band. And um, they were looking for a drummer. And my, my eldest brother was a good friend of Dave Fanning, So uh, they were looking for a drummer. And they, Mark, Mark Fenner, the Blades manager, had, had met Dave one night. And I was saying, "Cheese are having terrible trouble. We can't get a drummer and blah blah." And Dave said, "Oh, I know a fella who's a friend of mine. His younger brother is, loves the the blades and he plays the drums." So I just that's how I got a call. As <laughs> simple as that it was great. Uh, I got a phone call from Mark, uh, the manager, and uh, we um, had to meet them in town. We went out to where they were rehearsed. Uh, we went down and collected Paul and area went out and um, rehearsed out in Leekstiff actually. Um, and that's, yeah, that's how I got into the band. It was great. Great way to, you know, from a fan to go. So the great thing about it was I knew a lot of the songs. <laughs> so um, uh, it was, but I was in, I was kind of in, a, in awe a bit, you know, to be a fan of, apparently um, that's, uh, Keith Moon was a fan of The Who before. He was, he uh, used to go and see them all the time, but he was so brash, he used to tell them. To the said, a shout to the band. I'm a better drawer than your guy. <laughs> yeah. And they eventually oh here we give him a goal. But that's that's how Keith Moon got into the Who. I didn't quite go that far, but uh, yeah <laughs> never drove any
0: Rolls Royce and <laughs> swimming pools or anything like that. No, now. no, 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 no.
2: Definitely not at no.
0: Um the, yeah the Ghost of a cha- Ghost of a Chance is an incredible song. And I think it's um it's one of the songs that certainly points out Paul Cleary's talent as a lyricist as well yeah, as a yeah, wonderful songwriter. I think yeah. if, you, if, you, if you step back from the blades, m- music for a moment sometimes and you actually read the lyrics on the page, you realize yeah. Yeah. how strong the lyrics are on their own before you add them to the incredible music. Um, yeah. Like if you just look at the beginning of that long weekend when boredom takes a grip, I'm in Dublin, she's on a working trip. You know, it's that's yeah. that's poetry before you you Absolutely, you yeah. add it to music, and then the imagery around the United Nations and talking about not needing a translator to see yeah. how great this woman is. It's you very know. smart, yeah, really oh. smart,
2: and it's it's nearly Greek tragedy stuff. You know, if you really want to stretch it out, because you know these two are never ever gonna, uh, you know, they have no chance. You know, they're two two totally different backgrounds. It's it's quite there's a lot of different levels there.
1: It's such a great expression as well, isn't it, Jake? A ghost of a chance, you know, it's just it's just it. And the remarkable thing about that song is that for me, it's one of the handful of songs in my life that when I've heard it just once, it just lodges right in your brain and you never forget it. You can you can you can you you can hum it almost straight away.
2: Yeah. And and that's the genius. Uh, You know, the perfect pop song, it's so simple. And it just has to, you know, it's the one that you go off whistling. You know, you you hear it once and you're whistling it. Yeah, what's that? Yeah, the that's the old grey whistle test, you know. (laughs) That's that's what it is. But uh, yeah, no, you're right. It's it's a great. Well, certainly, and I thought the production was really good when I heard the Mm. single. It was a really powerful, punchy sound on it. Um, uh, I've never really asked for how we what what was involved over the double track or not, but certainly that drum sound really catches me. I think it's great.
0: Yeah, it, it does. It's kind of sounds a little bit compressed or something. Yeah. just kind of, yeah. it's, it's really powerful. And it, yeah. the one thing about the the blades as a whole, I think, as we're talking about production, is that I, I think all of the songs, most of the songs anyway, are, are flawlessly produced. They sound as they sound brilliant. But also, the look of the band was absolutely class. You know, you had this kind of. Um, I don't know, just a, a brilliant image as well that went hand-in-hand yeah. hand with the production and even the artwork on them, on, um, you know, the, the image on the front of Last Man in Europe is
2: just amazing. Yeah, yeah, I, I, well, and again, a lot of... The, well, we were all... But again, the, I mean, that's the mod influence as well. The, club, the image would be very much mod uh, um, the And then uh, Paul was very, very... Uh, sure of what imagery he wanted on the on the album i mean you know that mo- i'd say nearly every album and single cover like i'd say they were all taken within half a mile of very group so you know they'd be very to be very uh that'd be very important to him and rightly so they're great backdrops you know um and in fact just looking at the the backdrop to the uh those are the days of the last one in europe album those gasometers they're the ones down at um well they're gone now but they're down at uh key mm-hmm. yeah yeah
0: brilliant and tell me this jake what's your number two
2: uh oh yeah pride is the number two again i remember when paul came into the rehearsal room with that um and it was one of those ones that it's a really tricky um arrangement but mm-hmm. I, I just love the song um I have a story actually about it. But I love the song because I remember working it up and thinking, God, this is great. I'm really enjoying the idea of trying to figure out how to you know, get that arrangement right and the, the way to deal with the drums on it. But the thing that really gets me is even now when I hear it, there's a double chorus at the end and the uh, the brass comes in over Paul's vocals and it just gets me every time. It's a great, uh, it really, I just find that, you know, the, the hair is standing up, that's that, that effect on me even now i would listen to it i think that is so it's just such a pure bit of music so well uh, thought through and produced but when we were doing the when we were recording the album that was one we were uh, like we the, the album was done in london in uh littinson studios and um the the, the way the way recording was on those days is, I think it's completely different now but in those days you, you, you'd have the you'd know the tracks you'd rehearse for a week or so this is what we did and then uh, go in with the you'd know what tracks you were doing and um, you'd have Paul would maybe do a, a guide guitar and vocals and then you would work on the drums so you'd spend a couple of weeks just doing the drums so just to get the foundation so each song would take it would just be drumming for two or three days so I'd be in the booth with the drums and I'd have this guide track, whatever going through mead. And all the lads would be behind the the glass, you know, looking and there'd be John Ford to be there. And there'd be various people pressing buttons and doing things. And I'd go through through the track and stop and there'd be silence and you'd wait for a reaction. And eventually, you know, some would lean over and click, that's grand Jake, we we'll try that again. <laughs> and then this go on. And it would go on for hours and hours. But with pride, I, the the um the record company provided a a drum roadie. I think it's Doug was his name, and uh, Doug was, but he said that he was Keith Moon's roadie at one stage, but Keith was dead and gone at that stage, and uh, Doug was working for the record company, and he'd he'd provide all the drum gear, so anything i required, like extra sticks or cowbell or whatever, Doug would come in, and I remember saying to him one day, Doug, uh, tomorrow we're doing a song called Pride, and I want to get that big, you know, the big kind of uh, kettle drum sound, like a ELO orchestra at the beginning and he said, "Oh yeah, kettle drums, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, we'll, we'll see." So the next day uh, we came in, and there was the three, you know, the giant kettle drums. He said, "I have the drums, and I have the mallets." I said, the "What?" So that apparently that's what you call the thing—is you hit a kettle drum. It. So me, being a complete, uh, you know, amateur, I didn't know how to hit a, how to play a kettle drum. Uh, apparently, the trick with kettle drums is. You don't hit them, it's all in the race. it's very light. You don't hit them hard, so I made it complete. hands of things, so it didn't work with those. So we rigged up a bass drum on its side, but I still managed to use the, the kettle drum uh, mallets. <laughs> so at the beginning of Pride, you can hear this thundering sound, and that's what that's the kettle drum mallets on this on, on a bass drum. So yeah, that's that's why I picked Pride. It's just one of those I like, just liked the way the song evolved, and I can remember working on it. But the beauty of it is. It gets me every time. It's a it's a, it's
0: a fantastic song, and uh, then number number three, Jake. What what's your number three?
2: Oh, I think I know it. Number I should know. Oh, John Market, of course. Yeah, yeah. Uh, John Market is it's um, people now say that the, the, all they have to hear is the first note. You know, when we were playing live, they, all they heard the first note, and like we played in the in the Olympia and the Academy recently, and uh, the crowd would sing. Every word of that song, from beginning to end, not a bother. Um, and it's it's one of the few songs where, like I was saying, you know, like most drummers, I probably don't listen to lyrics that much. But when I heard Dan Market," it really struck me as being, uh, you know, it is a fantastic, uh, it is a really good social statement, uh, and and also it's not, it's a big story, you know, like it's not just, uh, you know, it, it opens up to this. You know, describes a room and the person, what he's thinking of, and then it goes into the, the wider world. Like it's quite a, it takes you on a journey. It's a really smart song. Um, it's, it's, such, it's such a terrific chorus, isn't it? Because yeah. you
1: know, you, you you just can't help but it's it's fist in the air sort of stuff, and it really gets you. And that repeat of down market, it's a, it's 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 almost a rallying cry for me. And if if that makes sense, Jake, it yeah, sounds, yeah. it 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 sounds like something you can respond to
2: like a clarion call but yeah it, uh, it is yeah it's something that you can re- certainly do. it's a, a song that everyone sings it onto um it's funny how there's the, the number of blade songs that are kind of you know negative you would imagine like Down, market and ghost which has just negative uh um what's the word you, you would think they're they, just by the the actual titles you think they were kind of negative but they're the opposite you know yeah. so uh and that's quite interesting as well. Also, it's not—it's quite a short. For you think it's a really, really long song. It's—it's it's very short. It's much shorter than um, uh, Revelations or, or Ghost of Chance. It's—it's it's it's, you know, it's done and dusted in, I think, less than three minutes. <laughs> it's, um there's a—it packs a huge. There's a huge amount in there for a short song.
0: Yeah, it's something. Something that stands out to me about the song is that it's quite interestingly structured so you know not an, a, a kind of a regular song like that might have verse chorus verse kind of structure yeah. but when i listen to it i hear kind of a verse then a bridge and almost a second bridge and then a chorus you know yeah and
2: um,
0: it's it's really interestingly structured and as you say the lyrics are are they're, they're dreary in some senses but then when you put it with the music it's kind of it's it's, it's, <laughs> it's uplifting. yeah it's it's yeah.
2: Uplifting. and that was the good i mean <laughs> Yeah, I remember when that was another thing about John Mark, Paul, You know, when Larry left the band, there was a kind of a, a uh, there was a bit of a gap there to be filled, and he didn't want to fill it with a you know a you know a ten minute guitar solo type of person. So we certainly more and more were well at the time as well. Brass was being more and more used. like you know the two tone thing was coming in, but also Dexys would have been. Uh, in fact, I'm pretty sure we saw Dexys anyway. Dexys were, were pretty big then. Um, so there's a big, big brass sound, and it was more trumpet and trombone rather than uh, sax. You know, sax is more kind of blues-based. Mm-hmm. So trumpet and trombone is R&B. Uh, it's more Tamil and Motown, really. Um, and it's very uplifting. It's a really uplifting sound. Those two instruments really, up, you know, with any chorus or with any song, when brass comes in, it just brings everything up so well. Whereas if it's a slower song with a sax, it's kind of the mood changes down more than up. So um, that was, you know, Paul had worked on a number of songs, but he was working his way towards down market and that crescendo, that kind of big brass sound, because it really is a song that's written for a brass chorus.
0: Mm. Uh, Speaking about the song, the, the historian Sam McGrath, he said that no one could come close to matching Paul Cleary's bitter description of a city torn apart by unemployment and monotony. Um, and I think it's a it's it's a good quote for for the lyrics. But uh, as you say, the brass and, yeah. and so on, and the, the the little brass solo, it just takes it it takes the song in a in a in an incredible direction. And it, it does, really yeah. is an Irish classic. Like I, I remember the first time hearing it myself. It was on um, Tom Dunn's compilation around the year two thousand. He had a compilation of Irish rock songs and pop yeah. songs. And I think Down Market was the the the, the song on the first of those compilations, and uh, it, it's just a it's it, it stood out on that album as an incredible, I you know song from an Irish band that hmm. I, I hadn't heard of, um, and uh, it certainly it, it blew me away when I heard it the first time. Gosh, yeah, that.
2: yeah, well, sorry, yeah, yeah, that that was it. That was the uh, the idea, right? Uh, when we were. <laughs> I think we did that. We did that quite early on in the on the album. We did it quite early on. Actually, there's a, when I tell you my rock and roll story for the album. Thank yeah, you. This, this is always this is our uh, you know slight sort of brush with rock and roll was um, when we were doing the album. We were in oh, we were maybe two or three weeks into between rehearsals and then work, working on the album. So we hadn't we been sort of living in the studio more or less. Although we weren't. Doing the kind of arriving at six in the evening and staying overnight, we were arriving in at maybe nine or so in the morning, but we'd stay we'd work quite late and then shoot off back to where we were staying, and then back you know it was a bus under, uh, underground back to a flat we were staying and uh, I was staying with Paul's aunt, um, and then back into the studio. So we didn't see the light of day, and we were living off fast food and stuff. So after three weeks of that, we were <laughs> our manager who we hadn't seen. It was it was off enjoying the delights lights of London. He um, appeared in and took one look at well, "Jesus, sorry like, oh, geez, what's the story? like he, we were kind of a bit grey looking and you know, spotty and uh you know, bags under our eyes. So uh, he said to John Porter was the producer. Now uh, John was uh he'd come in from he'd just finished John, John was an old very nice fellow, an old hippie really. He was the bass player in Roxy Music. Okay. And uh he went on I mean he's still I don't know what he's doing now, but it, certainly he was very successful afterwards as a producer in the States, but he had just finished doing the Smith's first album. So I reckon, I suppose, he probably saw us as being a bit of light relief after Morrissey. So, uh, yeah, uh, he was he was producing the, the album. There's a guy called Mannering was the engineer, and um, uh, Mark, the manager, said to, to the two lads, Jesus, guys, uh, the, the Paul and Jake and Brian, they're looking a bit rough, you know? Are they not eating? And, and uh, they decided anyway between them that look, we had to have, the band had to have at least one good meal a day. So John said, I'll, I'll get the missus to uh, to um, come in and, and she'll cook a meal for them. So with that, John's wife, you know, what was her name? I can't think of her name. But she arrived in anyway. And uh, she was lovely. She arrived in, in a beaten up old Volvo. They lived out in the country, so up in the home counties up in summer. And uh, she arrived in, in a beaten up Volvo with all the ingredients for her, uh, she But well, she said, hi, hi, hi boys. Uh, do you like Italian? We're having spaghetti tonight. So she prepared a big spaghetti meal. And each night she'd come in and she'd prepare a big meal. So it was great. We were fed really well. But uh, years later, I was reading um, the, what's his name? Uh, Rolling Stones guitarist, what's his name? Um, Keith Richards' uh, biography. And he was talking about there was a, a, a the Chelsea set, there's a bunch of, when they were starting off in the early 60s, there was a bunch of uh, um, really fashionable young people who hung around with them. They were models and whatever. And uh, one of them was this girl. And uh, she became, she was, had. Uh, I think he was going out with her for a while. But um, Keith got really worried about her because she started getting too much into drugs and or drink and drugs. To the this is in, in his biography. This is when Keith said he said to the extent that he was so concerned about her. Imagine this: he uh, went to her parents' house. <laughs> so, if you can just picture Keith Moon, uh, Keith uh, Richards knocking on, you know knocking on the door, and yes, answer Keith Richards said, "Hi, uh, I'm Keith Richards. I'm a bit concerned about your daughter's drug taking." <laughs> <laughs> so, um, anyway, this is the story he told. But he he said that she did the. Uh, get cleaned up and and he said, and she eventually married, uh, oh no, she said that he wrote a song about Ruby Tuesday was the song he wrote about her. So he said that she got cleaned up and, um, she eventually married a really nice guy, John Porter. turns out that the girl who was cooking our meals was Ruby Tuesday. (laughs) Now that's rock and roll.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Sex, drugs and spaghetti bolognese. (laughs) (laughs) That's a great story. To, right. So, w- another part of our show is we throw questions at our guests, uh, just random questions to see how oh, they yeah? get on, to put them under pressure, to, to make them feel awkward and take them out of their <laughs> comfort zone. I'll,
2: and... use, I'll use my prop here just to give <laughs> you a tiny <laughs> bit of time.
0: <laughs> so, I'll just throw questions at you for a moment. So, uh, first one best album ever in your view? What's your favorite album?
2: Favorite album? Revolver. Oh, yes. Be. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, much and on that just... one? Well, I, I think when you say favourite album, it's it's the one you grew up with. You know, it's the one that you would know. Like, I remember parties at the only... The only record was Revolver, <laughs> and it was Revolving nonsense, you know, that kind of carry-on. So, but I'd know every song. And also, uh, also because of Ringo starts drumming, it, there's not one boring drum track. You know, there's not one boring track, but he's drumming, he's very... He was a great man for trying to think in slightly outside the box and putting it... Just putting it, his own identity on the field of a song so yeah revolver excellent brilliant stuff walk or cycle i'll walk i wouldn't i'd fall off a bike (laughs) (laughs) beer or wine Beer. Uh, both i suppose black beer and red wine
0: (laughs) okay uh spotify or cd
2: oh I was given Spotify, uh, Josh, my son gave me Spotify as a birthday present, so there's no ads, and it's actually fantastic. So, again, it's one of those, it's like, it's the rabbit hole thing. Once you start going through, you could, you'd be there for a, for a full day, and you do end up back down at the Beatles at some point. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I remember a few years ago, uh, the Beatles weren't on Spotify, and it was just like, what's the point of Spotify yeah. if you can't end up back there?
2: Yeah,
0: yeah. Um, Tato or King?
2: Oh, King. King, King Chris. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Oh, yeah. Why? Uh, packaging.
2: <laughs> the packaging. Yeah, <laughs> yeah absolutely. <laughs> Fantastic packaging. Brilliant.
0: Uh, guilt, your guilty pleasure. King crisps.
2: I <laughs> yeah, King Chris. and Guinness. Yeah, uh, yeah. I I, I I could I could name one, but you'd have to I'd have to shoot you. Then.
0: <laughs> okay, if you could be in a drummer um, of any other band, uh, oh. what would it be? I, I'm guessing this is going to take us back to the Beatles again.
2: <laughs> uh, no, I don't know. That's a good one. Yeah. Wow, that's a, uh, that's an interesting. I'd say I would. Say a, I'd say The Clash actually because of the times and you know that, the, ma- the madness of that time and that band and Joe's drummer Uh, Joe Strummer. uh I'd like to have played in the band with Paul Simon. I think he's a great bass player, very solid Mick Jones, I don't know that but uh, certainly yeah I would, I'd love to have sat in for The Clash <laughs> And
0: uh, w- w- what's the, the, the best gig you've ever been at?
2: Oh well actually that's The Clash as well yeah that would be, uh, the, well, the best gig in terms of the biggest influence on me and mm. uh, was The Clash in Trinity in 77. Yeah, yeah. Uh, They were years, I mean, it was a fantastic gig. Everything about it was great. The, the sound was awful, but it mm. didn't really matter. It was just the whole thing, seen that bad at the point they were at. And then the crowd that were there, seeing the crowd, and like you would have known them all from being hanging around and shoegazing on, around town. Um, but also, it was a big influence. It, ju- it just made you think that, geez, anyone could do this. You know, mm-hmm. this is. Uh, and funny enough, I remember um, when we were there, I I was telling Paul about I was there with my queer friend at the time, who I'm married to now. But she, I had to carry her out. It was there was a man had opened the place; it was unbearable. And she clattered I carried her out. And I was telling Paul this, and he laughed and he said, well actually, funny enough, he was at the same gig." And he had to carry Larry out, who'd collapsed after a <laughs> few, few sherbets too many. So, anyway, yeah. So, it was. A, I think it was one of those sort of gigs. It was, a lot of, it was one that, you know, a lot of people talk about the Boontown rats and morons and haven't been there. But I think the Clash in Trinity was quite a, you know, ground zero for a lot of people.
0: It must have been a cool time to be going to gigs because you had kind of these led acts that would become legendary play in relatively small venues so be it like the ramones played in a, in a small yeah. venue oh, but fairview. yeah yeah in it's in true. fairview were, were you there
2: yeah about that all right yeah I mean, like at the time up to that there was nothing in terms of bands thing. rory Gallagher played once a year and he certainly goes that it was great stuff and the first live band i saw was i think it was tin lizzie in blackrock park well wow. i was trying to think about the first time i think i'm pretty sure it was them but it wasn't like it was an open air thing but there was no other He just didn't get bands and then suddenly there was this massive change after and it was punk that created yeah you know yeah i remember seeing we saw the post-punk thing we saw when well, we saw the clash i remember saying the clash and the jam within the same two weeks in the top hat in, in dunnery mm. and uh the with Dexies, the specials, uh God, you name it. There were so many bands that uh every band like uh Mavis, um, Ian Dury, um, uh, and then all the all the stiff tour stuff. Um, and then there's a lot of reggae bands, I think Alberta Butler brought in bands that were like there was the Cimarrons and uh I remember seeing a lot of uh, I remember seeing I think it was Linton Crazy Johnson and all that. You know, there was a lot of stuff like that you wouldn't you know, every week there was something you'd go and see. It was great. And it was like, I don't know, two pounds or whatever. It was some <laughs> uh, very, very cheap. And there was a lot of venues, a huge amount of venues. Uh, XTC up in Rat Mines. In, uh, that Elvis Costello in the Stella in Rat Mines. Uh, I remember seeing that. I remember I met him years later and uh, I was telling him that we saw him in the Stella in Rat Mines. It was 78. And he said, uh, he remembers that gig well because he'd just come off an American tour. And it was the first uh, gig of a European tour, and he got up on the stage, grabbed his guitar, grabbed his mic, and got blown back about two meters. <laughs> got an electric shock <laughs> in those God. days. Yeah, he was blown off the stage, wow. and uh, and he said he he played the rest of the gig completely, kind of wired as a result. <laughs> Go on, yeah,
1: it's, it's it's funny you should mention um, the Clash. So, uh, 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 Jake, in terms of. I mean, I think my, my own take on The Clash is I think they're up there with The Beatles in terms of their importance uh, to mm. music. Because in the same way that all roads lead back to The Beatles, so many roads lead back to The Clash. And, yeah. you know, that DIY attitude, which myself and Dan and the Big Adam show have taken <laughs> up, you know, it it really is. It is The Clash. And and Joe Strummer, I mean, so sad that he passed away so young at just 50 because what a remarkable! I, I went to see Joe Strummer and the Mescaleros and
2: the Olympian Tesno no more. Oh, I've had that, yeah, and yeah. What, do you remember? Jake? It was so good, and I remember and it, yeah. And at was, the end, he, like the amount of encores, he just he didn't want to leave the stage. It, it was brilliant, and he was taken. You know, there was it was there was no real kind of separation
1: between Joe Strummer and the audience. There was a great feeling. Of you know, Joe was just on level with people and the soundness of him. I remember, yeah, as you said, he was taking requests, and yeah. and one of the things he said, you know, coming. I think the last thing that I that I recall him saying was support your local bands. Yeah. Um, but anyway, just just a good memory to have. Um, a few
2: final things. Just, just something on that. I mean, they. You know, that I mean, that thing about the Clash and DIY and all that. The Clash really worked hard at their, you know, at, at their act at their you know, their music and how they came across. I mean, they really rehearsed. I mean, they were one of the, that was, they were known for, they. you know, they gave the impression of being a garage band and, you know, but they actually did really work hard. And uh, they were, they were tremendous. I, the difference between them in 77 in Trinity and the top hat a year later, when they were just about to release, uh, they they had they played some of London Calling stuff on at the Top Hat. They were just there was I know Dave Fanning says that his favorite uh, gig of all time was the Top the Clash in the Top Hat. They were superb. You know they they just worked hard. They played everywhere. Um, they didn't put up with any crap at all. It was their way or the highway. You know, very 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 solid, well worked band.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah. A few, a few final things from, from me, Jake, and just in terms of, um, thanks to everyone who sent in their takes and their questions. Um, just one that, that I like in particular came from Pat. Uh, thanks, Pat, for this one on Twitter. He said, Have Green Day ever paid homage slash royalties to the band? From Billy's guitar stance and riffs to Trey's drumming, they always seemed aware of the Blades.
2: What? Wow. So, <laughs> well... <laughs> yeah, okay. I can see where that's coming from. All right. Yeah, because uh it's there's a lot of one, two, three, fours and into a song. So yeah, <laughs> I must listen to a bit more to Green And the, uh, the,
1: the the other thing I was wanted to ask you, um, and a lot of people have asked us um to ask you is any chance um people loved modernized, of course, and um I loved um I loved Hard of Times from twenty fifteen and people are yeah. asking, you know, any chance of some more music and any chance of a Christmas gig? Jake, if you can answer that, if you don't
2: mind. Yeah, well, the, on the first question, um, yeah, I know Paul is planning, he has a number of different songs floating around his head and he's kind of putting them together. A lot of his stuff he's done recently has uh, been on piano rather than guitar. So uh, he's putting them together. He's talking about, he's talking about maybe recording again sometime towards the middle or end of next year like these things are very hard to nail down especially with the way things are at the moment and same with we do have a gig i'm pretty sure we will be doing the academy in early december um you know fingers crossed and all that but it it looks like that's gonna happen and there was a festival for that we were supposed to have done last last year i think it was in august or september in waterford that's been pulled back and put back and put back but there's a new date for um uh, sorry april next year uh there's a festival in waterford that we're supposed to be doing um so there, there's a few things in. nothing hard and fast but i'm pretty sure certainly december the academy and then there's going to be gigs next year for unless everything goes hey where well that's all very
1: very good news uh uh, Jake not just for myself and Dan but for many Blades uh, fans um, okay. that's a lot, a lot to look forward to um, I think it, look, we just want to thank you very much for coming on uh, the Big Album Show it's been, been an absolute pleasure uh, and a little journey uh, uh, in itself um, but for, for for us so thank you very very much for coming on the Big Album Show it's been a real pleasure Jake
2: really appreciate it okay well, well thank you very much uh, I've enjoyed that and uh, I'm going to go down and have a glass of red wine You're listening to The Big Album Show with Paul and Dan. Please remember
1: to subscribe, hit like and remember to follow us on our social media platforms at The Big Album Show.